Now, let's turn over to Ephesians chapter 6, which is the book we've been looking at for quite a long time now. Um, Ephesians chapter 6, and uh, page 1163 in the Black Church Bibles. And those of you who've been um, patiently uh, going through this book uh, book with me over the past few months will know that uh, two or three weeks ago we reached uh, the point where we talked about verse 17. Take the helmet of salvation, which we talked about in previous weeks, and then, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, I actually gave the title to the, to the talk um, three weeks ago. Um, the sword, which is the Word of God. And I concentrated there on... on talking about the word of God and the amazing way it can work in our lives. But of course, there's another aspect to this verse, which is, of course, that it's, uh, it's not just that the sword, the sword of the Spirit is, is the word of God, but actually that the sword, the word of God, is the sword of the Spirit. And that's what I want to be thinking about tonight in my talk. So I'm just going to pray, and then we're going to look at this, uh, this verse and the possession of the, uh, of the Word of God by the Spirit himself. So let's pray. Oh, Father, uh, we ask you, please, that you will um, uh, encourage us, build us up, convict us, and indeed change attitudes, change minds. Uh, Lord, uh, help us to grow And uh, may we know more of your Spirit's power in our lives and in our church. Uh, So we pray speak to those of us here now and those also online. Um, In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Amen. Now, I don't know if any of you have seen a program. I've seen it quite quite a few times and I quite enjoy it. It's called Forged in in Fire. It's uh, an American series. It's a long-running series. There's been, I don't know, 60, 70 episodes of it in which there's a competition between blacksmiths, swordsmiths, bladesmiths they call them, uh, four of them, uh, they have have a limited amount of time in which to create a blade, usually a sword of some sort. Uh, And there's an incredible uh, variety of these. I mean, these 40 or 50 programs all deal with different kinds of swords and different kinds of uh, things from different different countries all over the world. And it's basically the... The, the one who produces the best sword, who forges the best sword, wins $10,000. Now, I want us to notice that Paul talks about the Christian has to have all kinds of armor on, which we've been looking at, breastplate, helmet, and so on. But he needs to take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And the sword of the Spirit is infinitely more complex and infinitely more powerful than a mere blade that a human soldier uh, would, would use in those days. And yet, here we have it. You, whoever you are, however old you are, however young you are, man or woman, you can have this sword of the Spirit at work in your life. It's a phenomenal thing. Now, It's called the sword of the Spirit, firstly, because, of course, the Spirit has crafted uh, the Word of God over thousands of years. The Bible, which is the Word of God, um, uh, 
basically was put together over a period of a couple of thousand years at least. Abraham left her of the Chaldees, I think, in, in, in roughly the 1800s, 1700 BC. And the Bible wasn't finished until probably 60, 70 AD. And over 2,000 years, the infinite mind of God, through the Spirit of God, inspired prophets and teachers and writers and poets, all kinds of people, to put together this amazing communication tool, which is not just a communication of information tool, but which is a, a tool for the fighting of spiritual battles and winning victory in spiritual battles. Now, here's the thing. We thought we were thinking about it three weeks ago about the, the Word of God. Is that the Word of God is the absolute truth? It contains the gospel, which is the power to change people's lives and so on. But by itself, the Bible actually, no matter how often it's read, how often it's preached, how often, how often it's communicated, it cannot do anything unless the Spirit of God takes His Word and applies it to human hearts. The Bible talks about God writing his word in our hearts. Well, who does that? It's the Holy Spirit. The, God, uh, the Bible talks about uh, blind eyes being you know, made to see. The God of this world has blinded people's eyes. But it's actually only, of course, by the Spirit of God there's freedom. And we all will unveil faces. See, the glorious good news of the gospel in the face of... In the face of Christ. The glorious gospel of God in the face of Christ. It is the spirit who does this. A preacher with a Bible only is not going to do anything. The Holy Spirit must be filling the preacher. But more than that, he has to be working through his own word, the spirit's word, the spirit's word in people's hearts to change them, to convict them, persuade them. We'll look at that work a bit later on. Now, uh, I want us to notice that the Lord gives power. And I want to look at a few, uh, a few uh, uh, ideas about the necessity of us uh, using the word of God and the word of God only. I want us to look at uh, the way in history the spirit of God has used this sword for tremendous and incredible spiritual victories. And also uh, the framework for our lives, the way that God would train us and and empower us with the Spirit of God today. So, the, the first thing that I want to note is this, is that the, there is a spiritual being who opposes the work of the Spirit, and opposes the Bible, and of course that is Satan. We know that uh, he will use all kinds of methods to try to make the Bible a completely irrelevant book to people. Um, one way he might do it is by actually trying to to, to actually twist the Bible's mean, meaning. There's all been all kinds of heresies, weird cults, uh, strange things that happen to people's brain that they twist the words of the Bible and they come out with all kinds of weird and terrible, uh, and terrible variations on what the Bible really teaches. Now, this isn't surprising because we're told that the, Satan is, is the father of lies. And indeed, when Jesus himself embarked upon his ministry to save the world... As he was praying and fasting in the, in the desert for 40 days, and by the way, he wasn't having a meal every night, which uh, our friends in the Muslim community do. Jesus went without food for 40 days and 40 nights. And basically, 
uh, during that time that Satan tempted him. And we're given in the Gospels three temptations. And and, and Satan quoted scripture to try to lead Jesus away from his destiny, which was to die for the sake of um, for the sake of sinners. On each case, he, you know, he said, oh, um, if you cause these stones to become bread, you know, feed people just like Moses. And of course, the temptation is, of course, well, Jesus himself would eat the bread. Um, uh, Satan uh, says, bow down, and, bow down and worship me and I'll give you the whole, the whole world. Of course, um, taking the place of God, taking a, a biblical idea of worship, thinking about that this morning, but transferring it to Satan himself. And, of course, the other temptation was that he said uh, to, to Jesus, well, the angels are, are, are you're the Messiah, the angels are going to look after you, so throw yourself down from this high precipice, and you will prove yourself to be the Son of God. And Jesus, in every case, resisted the twisting of the word of God by correctly defining what the word of God says. The thing is, Satan opposes the word of God. And above all, he wishes the church to be disarmed of this incredible, powerful weapon. You know, the devil wants uh, basically the sword of God to be hung up on a wall and not looked at, not read, not accepted. This, of course, is why unbelieving liberal theology that Henry mentioned this morning is so dangerous. Many Christian denominations were disarmed by the devil generations ago, 50, 80 years ago, 100 years ago in some cases, 150 years ago. Uh, you know, people today often, you know, uh, who are from a conservative, traditional background, you know, are, are flapping around saying, oh, what's happened in the last 20 years? The world is turning upside down. How can people, um, you know, have uh, this situation where... where uh, Marriages are being uh, the, between homosexual people are being blessed in church. I don't know, that was unimaginable 30 years ago and so on. Well, actually, it, it was quite imaginable. It was quite logical 50 years ago. It was quite clear that when you give up believing that the Bible truly is God's truth, his infallible word, his inerrant word, once you've lost that anchor, you're going to just drift the same way as the world was drifting. I mean, 50, 60 years ago was when the Gay Liberation Front first started and started to gain adherence. And it's obvious that if you've got nothing that's actually controlling your view of truth, then you're going to drift the way the world drifts. And the devil, of course, seeks to disarm Christians from, from actually holding on to the word of God. So it, it's it really important that this sword of the Spirit is retained and used by Christians. And here's the wonderful thing, of course, is that the Holy Spirit not only empowers the word, which we'll be looking at in a minute, but he interprets it to us. In the Second World War, there was um, a real problem that we had with the, with the German Navy, sinking ships left, right and centre. I mean, um, convoys of ships and so on, that were bringing food to Britain. The submarine fleet were, 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 was constantly at work. One of the crucial things that happened in the Second World War was the capture of a, of a, a machine which deciphered encrypted messages. You know your WhatsApp messages are encrypted. No one can, no one can hack them in the sense of, of download them and then understand what they mean because they're encrypted, the messages that you're actually, you're actually using. 
Well, this encryption machine, they had an encryption machine, the Germans had, to pass on messages to the U-boats, to where they should be, where their next attack should be, and so on. Well, you may know the story that uh, the Enigma machine um, was, there was able to be deciphering of these, of these German messages, and the war was won. Now, here is the, here's the fact the Bible says. The things of the Spirit are complete mysteries to the man without Christ. They cannot be interpreted. They cannot really be understood. They cannot really be applied to people's hearts. Yes, on one level, they can understand the basic message that Jesus lived in history. Jesus died. Jesus rose from the dead. But the natural person, man or woman, cannot cannot apply this to themselves and understand that they can be forgiven, they can be saved, they can be given eternal life. This is something of, of crucial importance for their life. But rather, they drift through life completely blind to the wonderful and powerful message of salvation. But the Holy Spirit interprets the Word of God, reveals the Word of God. You, you may have heard that um, President Putin is threatening to... Um, uh, threatening a nuclear war because we're supplying uranium-tipped shells to, you, to the tanks that uh, are going to Ukraine. Well, of course, he's exaggerating about uranium-tipped shells. He's, he's trying to uh, tell the, the Russian people that uh, these are terrible because they're, they're nuclear weapons. Well, they're not at all. A uranium-tipped shell contains... The idea is that there's no uranium in it that could possibly lead to a nuclear explosion. It's a uranium uh, which has had all of the active, uh, if you like, elements. It's depleted of its radioactivity and its power to have a, a nuclear explosion. It's the leftovers that, is, that, that remain after all of the, all of the, um, the, the if you like, the nuclear fission power has been removed from it. But what depleted uranium is, is an incredibly hard um, uh, um, metal or whatever, whatever we're going to call it, element, which when you put it on a shell, it will burst through the most amazingly thick um, uh, armors, uh, armored tanks. So a uranium-tipped a uranium shell is, is, has the power to penetrate and get through the hardest heart. Now, that, that is what the sword of the Spirit, what the Holy Spirit... Uh, grants to us, both in the word, which is the truth, but also the power he gives to when the Bible is being witnessed, preached, shared, either either through a book or through a a, a casual conversation in a coffee bar, or someone like me standing in a pulpit and and really, uh, you know, raising their voice. When the Holy Spirit is at work, he produces great power. And you know, this is so important that we, should, that we should understand why the necessity of the sword of the Spirit should be at work in our churches. Well, yeah, but how does the Word of God in general, the whole of the Bible, um, relate to the Gospel? Um, and how, how does this all relate to the, the work of the sword of the Spirit? Uh, um, no one is suggesting, for instance, that by preaching um, from uh, the book of uh, um, Chronicles about one sentence dealing with a king that lived 3,000 years ago, um, that somehow that is going to convert someone to Christ. So it, it's the gospel we know that is the, the thing that converts. Paul says, I came, I came to Corinth 
and resolved to preach Christ and him crucified only. And uh, I didn't come with wisdom. I didn't come talking about miracles or doing miracles. I came proclaiming Christ and him crucified in a demonstration of the spirit and power. Well, how does, how does therefore, um, the word of God in general relate to the cross of Christ, to the message of the gospel? Well, the first thing to understand is the, 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 the nature of revelation that the Spirit has produced in the Bible is, is massive. It's like a massive continent of truth. It's a massive territory. But, like big continents, or big continental countries that are big as continents, like Russia or China, they're both as big as some continents. It's a vast country, but there is a capital city at its center with motorways and communication networks leading to it. Now, in just the same way, the Bible, with its vast amount of truth, of history and theology and and uh, uh, about people's psychology and about the spiritual world, this vast amount of information that the Spirit has revealed, these mysteries that have been revealed to us in the Bible, actually all lead to the cross of Christ and his resurrection. Uh, the Romans used to say, all roads lead to Rome. We might say every part of the Bible ultimately leads to the cross and to the resurrection. I mean, if we take the creation, Genesis 1, the, the creation of the universe, even there, it's actually leading to, 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 to the cross because we know that this good and wonderful creation that God originally made was fell into sin and into darkness, the temptation of the devil, and into destruction. And even there, in the first three chapters of Genesis, we have a direct inferences about where this whole thing is going to lead to the destruction of the devil and to salvation for mankind. We could talk about the law of God that's been revealed in the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments. On one level, you'd say, well, what's got the, the law got to do with the gospel? Well, the answer is quite simple. When we listen to the Ten Commandments, when we mull over one commandment, and we let it just ring in our mind, think about its consequences, and we, and we actually think about our own lives. Let's take, you shall worship the Lord your God and him alone. And then we think about this and we think about times in our lives when we've completely ignored God. And we go through every phase of our life, time after time, we've taken choices where we haven't been really worshipping God. We've come to church and actually we've gone there to meet people rather than to worship God. And we could go through all of them. Murder, adultery, and go through all of the ways in which we've broken those commands spiritually, if not committed them in fact, but in, in actual external actions, but internally. Surely that just causes a sense of guilt. Where does the cross come into it? And the resurrection, well, the answer is, of course, this. Paul tells us that the, that the law was given to expose sin, to show its awfulness, that it might lead us to Christ. The center uh, to, to the, the sacrificial system, the temple, the, the whole thing that, that was put forward by the Jews leads to the cross and the resurrection. The story of sin and judgment, which we find constantly throughout the Old Testament, people turn away from God, judgment comes upon them. It leads ultimately to the hope for the world in Christ and indeed in Jesus' own life. I worked out that Jesus had about 12,000 days on planet Earth. About 12,000 days on planet Earth. But those 12,000 days ultimately led 
to those last three days of when he died and of when uh, he rose from the dead. So when Paul says, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, he is ultimately talking also, fundamentally, at the center of the word of God is the message of the gospel. And the message of the gospel speaks so much more powerfully than perhaps the fear of, the fear of punishment, the fear of guilt. Uh, in the book of Hebrews, um, the writer says that we think about Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and we think about the sprinkled blood of Jesus that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now, the writer there, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is making a comparison between Abel, whose blood was sprinkled on the ground because his brother killed him. We don't know exactly, exactly the means by which Cain killed Abel, whether it was with an axe, a hammer, or just a punch, whatever it was. Abel's blood was sprinkled on the ground. And the Old, this, the, the Old Testament tells us that God said to, 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 to Cain, your, your, your brother's blood is crying out from the ground. What, what was it crying out? It was crying out for judgment, for punishment. And it was crying out loudly in a, in a, a world that had so far only started on its terrible career of wickedness. This terrible murder of a brother by another brother. Cried out for, for punishment. Cried out for justice. And yet, thousands of years later, the Son of God's blood was sprinkled on the ground. And this blood cries out mercy for sinners mercy for Cain mercy for the wicked of the world mercy, love and that of course is why that of course is why the sword of the spirit is such a wonderful and gracious weapon that we should be using isn't it marvellous that we're talking about a weapon that gives life Ultimately, not actually destroys life. That gives hope, that gives love, not hatred. Um, that actually brings peace and not war. You see, we know that this sword is involved in conversion. People are converted because of the word of God. Not because they've been influenced. Not because even they, met, they may have met a Christian that really has impressed them. It's actually the word of God that leads to conversion. Now, I want to read a, a, a part of a Wikipedia article upon the um, Mitsuo Fuchida, which, for those who don't know anything about the Second World War, he led the attack at Pearl Harbor of the torpedo planes that uh, bombed Pearl Harbor that started this, uh, the Second World off, World War off for the USA. They hadn't joined it until that moment in time. Now, this man, uh, I'm going to read part of this article from, from um, Wikipedia. He arrived with the first attack wave. He was a commander. It, it, he banked west and uh, flew along the northwest coast. He ordered Tenkai take attack position. Then Fushida slid back the canopy of his torpedo bomber and fired a single dark blue flare known as a black dragon, the signal to attack. So he was, a, he was an, an important, brave warrior for the Japanese. Now, after the war, Fujita was called on to testify at the trial, trials of some Japanese military. 
This infuriated him as he believed it was little more than victor's justice. In other words, it was just, just revenge upon the Japanese because they'd lost the war. However, in 1947, he decided he was going to conduct his own war trials against the Americans. And he decided to start uh, in, uh, interviewing prisoner, Japanese prisoners of war and found out if they had suffered under, uh, under, the, um, under the Americans. And he was surprised to find his former flight engineer, Kazuo Kanagasaki, he told Fujita that they weren't tortured and they weren't abused, which of course did happen with the, Japan, the American uh, prisoners of war. This man then went on to tell him about a young lady, Peggy Covell, who served them um, in, in, when they were in, in, uh, in jail with love and respect, constantly visiting them, bringing them food and so on. But her missionary parents had been killed by Japanese soldiers in the war in the Philippines. Now, Fujita, when he heard this, not only was he, you know, realized, well, he couldn't carry this campaign on against American war crimes, he has also found it absolutely unbelievable. According to the Bushida Code of Re Revenge was not only permitted, it was a responsibility. If your parents were killed, in other words, you had to kill whoever killed your parents, and the murder of one's parents would be a sworn enemy for life. How could this woman be looking after the Japanese who had killed her parents? And he was not only intrigued, he started to be obsessed, and the Wikipedia article goes on to say this. He then, in 1948, was handed a pamphlet about the life of a member of, of the American Air Force who was captured by the Japanese, and um, in it, this man, who became a Christian, um, told of his imprisonment, torture, and his account of an awakening to God while he was in prison. And he became more intrigued. Now, I want us to notice this. This did not convert him. He was amazed at the love and forgiveness that Christians were showing, but that did not convert him. What happened was this, according to Wikipedia. The experience increased Fuchida's curiosity of the Christian faith. But in 1949, after reading the Bible for himself, he became a Christian. And he went on uh, to create the Evangelistic Association of Captain, uh, Captain Fuchida and spoke full-time of his conversion in the Christian faith and went on to, to be involved in evangelistic work for the rest of his life. Now, uh, I looked up another... Um, uh, article about him and, and, and basically he read the words of Jesus on the cross Father forgive them because they do not know what they are doing and the Holy Spirit used this to burn into his heart the awareness of the love of God in Christ which brought him into new life and that his own sins could be forgiven. Now I've just given an example there of the fact that you know we constantly are, 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 are given the impression by some Christians that we, you know, if we just uh, live a good life, then people will become Christians. Well, no, we need to live a good life. Jesus told us, let your, let your light so shine before men that they may glorify God in heaven. Yes, we need to do that. We need to feed the hungry. We need to help people. We need to have um, good works in a church. It's part of being a Christian. It's good works. Part of a, a church is good works, identifiably part of a, of a church's mission. But above all, we need to allow the word of God to be preached in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to look, I want to move on, therefore, to look at the way 
the, the Bible shows us a pattern about um, how it is possible uh, to know um, the Spirit of God using his sword. As I've said already, it's the Spirit's sword. If we try to use the Bible and the Bible's teaching without God's help, we will get nowhere. Now, note in, in, uh, in the Gospels um, that Jesus told his disciples who had been fully trained up in the word of God. We sometimes forget this. We sometimes think that somehow the apostles suddenly on the day of Pentecost suddenly became fantastic speakers, workers, and had all this knowledge, and it, it just came out of nowhere. No, they'd had three years with Jesus, teaching them how to speak, sending them out into the harvest field, firstly as 12 disciples in pairs, and then as, as a much larger group in pairs with other people that were being trained. They learned not only how to, how to, as apostles, use the power of God to actually perform miracles, but above all, to teach and to preach. Now, when Jesus died and rose from the dead, you might have said, well, there we are, get ahead and do it. Jesus has risen, and he's shown himself to be alive. Go ahead. No, but Jesus said, no, you must wait in Jerusalem for power from on high. So here we see a, a, an important clue uh, to... Um, this whole ministry, both in our personal evangelism, also preaching, and in the church as a whole, is waiting upon God and asking God for power. That the Bible's message will not be in words only, but will be in full assurance, full conviction, and in the Holy Spirit and in power, which Paul mentions in, in his letter to the Thess- first letter to the Thessalonians in the first chapter. Now, notice that, uh, therefore, the disciples did wait for seven weeks. And they might have carried on for seven years, actually. They didn't, had no idea how long they had to wait for. They didn't know the day of Pentecost was the day, uh, the D-Day, when suddenly things changed. It tells us in Acts 1.14, All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Notice how inclusive this church is. No one was worried about uh, the roles that people were taking in this area. In the area of the spiritual battle, there is neither male nor female. In the area of prayer, there is neither male nor female. We know there are clearly delineated roles in the church for men and women that are clearly specified in, in, uh, in, in, in uh, Paul's letters and in other parts of the Bible. But in the area of spiritual struggle and spiritual victory... It is totally inclusive. Men and women, children. Uh, I don't know if any children did gather with uh, their parents in that upper room. We don't know. They were not waiting in a vacuum as if they didn't know what they were called to do. All of the apostles knew that they had a task to, to actually take the gospel out. Jesus had already told them this. When he, before he ascended, he'd said, you know, you were to go into a whole world and preach this gospel, making disciples of all nations. They had spent three years training and learning for, and waiting for graduation day. And they were waiting and they prayed. And we can see that this was so that they knew fully well what they were going to be about once they received power from on high. Because uh, at one point they realized one of the apostles had to be replaced. Judas had committed suicide and they realized that they needed uh, someone to join that apostolic twelve. And so in Acts 1.24, it says, They prayed and said, Lord, 
who, who knows the heart of all, show which one of these two you've chosen to take place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judah turned. From which Judas turned. Now notice, this was before Pentecost. They were waiting, waiting. They knew that they had a ministry, but they knew that it would be a powerless ministry unless they received power from in high. And of course, when the day of Pentecost happened, the power of God came upon them and came indeed upon the church for the first time. I don't believe for a minute that uh, Acts 2 is meant as such to be a pattern for the whole church, as if every time a church is planted, it has to receive a new experience of the Holy Spirit, or every individual has to receive exactly the Holy Spirit in exactly the same way they did on the day of Pentecost. No, the Bible isn't saying that. But it is saying the principle that the power of the Holy Spirit is linked to the praying, waiting upon God, I think is clear as we read through the rest of the New Testament. So when, uh, when Peter um, then gave a speech on the day of Pentecost, had he prepared it? Had he written notes on it? I mean, if you read the speech, it's a very well-crafted speech. Was it all completely spontaneous? Well, I don't think it was completely spontaneous. And I don't think it was all given by the Holy Spirit uh, there and then, a, a complete set of ideas. I am sure that Peter had been carefully meditating on the nature of the gospel, of what had happened for 50 days. And so when he came, uh, when he came to, to preach this message, to speak this message, he had a very good idea what he was going to say. He'd had two and a half months, two and a half months, to think through the nature of the gospel. But, the, but if he'd given that speech before he, the power of the Spirit had come upon them, and without the power of the Holy Spirit, it wouldn't have had the effect it did. In fact, what happened, of course, we know is thousands were converted in a single day. Thousands walked. Uh, came in uh, later on. So here we have uh, the pattern. Praying and waiting and seeking the power of God upon the word of God. And then when the word is preached, the Lord answers with power. Uh, Does it mean we've got to wait for 50 days? No. For the reasons we'll look at uh, towards the end of my talk, which is only a few minutes from now, we'll see that uh, Paul, well I'll, I'll say it now, uh, Paul asked for prayer. He didn't say, uh, you wait for 50 days and pray for, for this situation. Wait, you know, no, pray that the word of God may spread rapidly. And uh, all of his statements of asking for prayer and praying for other people show us that we're no longer in a situation where we're, we have to go aside to pray and wait for 50 days, but actually we can get down on our knees and be praying and seeking the Lord as the New Testament uh, the New Testament uh, um, uh, says. Now, and we see this uh, actually in Acts chapter 4, which was after the day of Pentecost, the church runs into a problem. Um, I'm not going to go into a great deal of de- detail, but basically the apostles have been arrested, interrogated, and warned if you carry on this way, you know, implicit threat, they might be imprisoned or killed. When they were released, chapter 4, verse 23, they went to their friends. They went straight to the hundreds of disciples and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, that is, the whole church heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God. And, well, someone said, Sovereign Lord who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, basically act. Verse 29, 
Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Verse 30, while you stretch out your hands to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. They knew that the apostles had been granted these gifts two, two years before, at least two years before, when they were actually given the power to heal, the power to do signs and wonders through the villages of Israel. They knew that the apostles had, had these gifts and they would continue to use them. And then it says, verse, verse 31, And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. They were filled again. They were baptized again in the Holy Spirit. I agree with Ian Murray, who talks about the fact that um, we're not talking about one baptism in the Spirit. We believe in multiple fillings and baptisms of the Holy Spirit. And so the, ch- the church proceeded. So we have a pattern. I'm not saying this is a formula that we can say, oh yes, well, we'll have the same results as the apostles. Thousands converted because we were praying. No, I, that's not. That, it's down to the sovereign work of God, um, whether thousands or hundreds of thousands are converted. But actually, the Acts does give us the basic principles by which we see the power of God at work. And in fact, whether the Holy Spirit works in one person or a thousand, it's the same work. I mean, after all, um, you might have a plant pot growing a, a, single, a single stalk of wheat. You know, and, and you water it and, and, and it grows and, oh, it's quite good. You've got a little crop there and your little plant pot. It's exactly the same process as a vast prairie, hundreds of miles long full of wheat. Exactly the same, the water bringing life to the seed and the seed growing with, with the power that is worked within it. And so whether we're talking to three people on, the, on a doorstep when we're, when, we're, uh, when we're doing door-to-door work or we're doing open-air witnessing, whether it be 30,000 people like George Whitfield spoke to or one person, the same spirit is at work and the same principles pertain. Without the spirit of God using the gospel message, nothing happens. But if the Spirit of God is at work wielding the sword of the Spirit, then, in fact, we see spiritual, we see spiritual, uh, spiritual victories. Now, looking back in history, we see these great eras of the Spirit's war on planet Earth wielding the sword of the Spirit. I'm not going to go into them. I'll just, I'll just give a list. The spread of the gospel in the Roman Empire, where Christianity turned from a few individuals in the Roman Empire to a vast number such that the Roman emperor had to, had to concede, I need these people on my side, and so claimed to become a Christian. That was Constantine. In, in, uh, in just a few hundred years, spreading in a pagan, violent, vicious, persecuting society, and upturned it all because of the power of the Spirit working through the word. The great evangelical revival in Great Britain in the 18th century, the great, great American awakening in the USA in the 18th century, the great African awakening of the last 150 years. I've never seen anybody use those words. But how, how wonderful the gospel has spread in Africa. Unbelievable. I had a, a friend at university who um, grew up in Uganda as a, as a young boy. His father was a missionary during the time of the Ugandan revival, one part of the African awakening. And it, it was wonderful to talk to him about the great things that happened and, and seen. And, and we know that, you know that there are trouble spots in Africa, but there have been wonderful, wonderful blessings precisely in those trouble spots. 
Often, as we know, persecution arises in response to great works of God. And there's been great works of God in Africa. Um, We could go on to talk about all kinds of awakenings in South America. China, in the last 30 years, 100 million people. The Communist Party says 100 million people are now saying they are Christ's. This is, this is wonderful beyond, you know, beyond description. You know, if we saw one million converts in Britain in 20 years, we'd be over the moon. A hundred million in, in the last 20 or 30 years in China. Now, I would like to note that as far as I know, all of those awakenings have followed this pattern we've talked about. They have the word of God. They know that the word of God is the, is the power of God for salvation. But they pray, and they pray, and they seek, and they seek God's help. So... That's uh, the, the area of the framework and history. But let's just finish by asking ourselves the question, well, well how, does, how do I fit into this? Well, firstly, let us understand that just in the same way I started the service by saying everybody, however old or young they are, has, if they're Christians, has the great sword of the Spirit. But not only that, how wonderful it is, you have the Spirit the Holy Spirit of God living in you to teach you and train you and help you. Now look, we know we often ignore him. We quench the Spirit. We grieve the Spirit. We, we don't walk in the Spirit, but walk in the flesh. And if we're walking in the flesh, my goodness, what a, what a ramshackle life we're leading. If, if day by day goes by and we're just living according to human principles, and all of the time the supernatural uh, principles of new life in Christ we, we leave behind. Well, that's been true of me for much of my life, I'm afraid. But look, Christ promised this personal trainer to come into our lives to help us and train us how to wield his sword. Jesus said in John 14, verse 16, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper, another one who comes alongside. The word is paraclete. Another person who is with you. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you will know him, or know him, for he dwells with you and you will be in, and, and, sorry, and will be in you. The helper, the Holy Spirit, that's verse 26, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Now that was a special promise to the apostles, specifically in their ministry, of actually writing scripture, of giving uh, an account of Jesus' life, um, which we find in the Gospels. But the principle is clear that the Holy Spirit clarifies, helps us to understand the things of Jesus. And in John 16, Jesus carries on talking about this work of the Spirit. I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage I go away, I die. And, and, and ascend into heaven for if I don't go away the helper will not come to you but if I go I will send him to you and when he comes he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they don't believe in me concerning righteousness because I go to the father and you'll see me no longer concerning judgment because of the ruler of this world is judged Here we have the promise that the Holy Spirit is going to be working both in the apostles but also in ordinary Christians through the Holy Spirit as we spread his word to bring conviction to rebels that don't believe in Christ, conviction that the resurrection is true, 
because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judge. And that is to do with the cross. That people will be convicted that the cross is the center to history. That at that point in time, the devil's rule over my life has been completely destroyed. The devil's rule over all those who trust in Christ is destroyed. The ruler of this world has been cast out. And he's cast out of people's lives as they trust in him. So the Holy Spirit wants to train us in gospel truths as well as in the other truths of the Bible. And he, he does this day by day and to a greater or lesser extent as we are seeking him. As we choose to walk according to the spirit and not according to the flesh. And, and every time you sincerely pray, Lord, please forgive me. Please grant me uh, to be able to live by your word. At that point, fixing your minds and hearts on Christ. You're, you're living in the spirit. And so prayer is, is central both to the individual's walk with God. But also to the flourishing and uh, to the expansion of the, the church. Now, here I'm going to remind you of those words I said about Paul asking for prayer. Now, here's the problem. Some people who are charismatically inclined make a big deal about, oh, we've got apostles in our church. Oh, we've got this gift. We've got tongue speakers. We've got prophets. We've got all... Yeah, okay. Well, look, Paul was a great apostle. He was a great prophet. He was a healer. He was a tongue speaker who spoke in tongues more than anybody else that he knew. That's what he appears to say to the Corinthians. And yet, what does he do when he's talking to fellow Christians? He's asking for prayer. But surely, he's this wonderful, charismatic man. He's got the power to do anything. No, he hasn't. Without Christ, he can do nothing. Without the Holy Spirit wielding the sword in his life, his ministry comes to nothing. What does he say? He says in 2 Thessalonians 3, one. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. 2 Corinthians 1.11. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Ephesians 6.19, a verse that we will actually be looking at in due course. Pray also for me that words may be given to me in the opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to. And Colossians 4 verse 3. Pray also for us that God may open a door to us for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. Now, that last verse, here is the apostle saying, the door is closed unless you help to open it. Pray for us that God may open up to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. And so, let's actually realize that God is calling the church to prayer. To prayer uh, for, obviously, the ordinary things of life day by day, but also to pray for the word of God to run, to spread, for the word of God to have power in this world, that God may give a great harvest. We want in our own lives, of course, that, that we should be able to glorify God in the, just the ordinary household tasks that we have, the, our ordinary lives, of course, that we should live for his glory. But as churches, we need to be like the early church, 
have periods and seasons of waiting upon God, crying out for him to do great and wonderful things. Um, one of the things I did think of doing, but uh, I, I realized uh, I had to you know, leave them to one side in my notes, uh, to give examples uh, uh, from history of the great prayer meetings that happened in churches that were, in, were, uh, were involved in uh, great awakenings. Spurgeon's church is one in, in, in case I've got a booklet, which I will actually print in due course, um, about revival and about um, Sp- you know, Spurgeon's own church, his experiences of great prayer meetings. Um, uh, Spurgeon started in a comparatively small church in those days of only 300 members uh, uh, and uh, 300 people attending the services in, in, um, uh, in um, the New Park Street Chapel. But they were a praying people and put together the preaching of the word of God with a praying people and they were wonderful under the sovereignty of God. They were wonderful and marvelous results. And within just four or five years, there were 7,000 people uh, attending and listening to the word of God. They weren't coming for some <laughs> knees up uh, with a worship leader. Uh, they didn't have, uh, they didn't have uh, smoke and mirrors and all this uh, kind of stuff. They just had the simple word of God preached in the power of the Spirit and thousands were converted. They had 40 baptisms a month um, for, for 30 years of his ministry in that church. So uh, there's lots of examples I actually had down, but I appreciate I really wouldn't have the time to talk about tonight. But let us seek in our little group of people this kind of prayer and we, won't, we know, we can be certain that God will bless the sword of the Spirit in our lives if we wield it in the way he wants us to, with indeed introducing the Spirit into the equation and seeking God's power um, as we actually preach the word. So let's uh, just have a word of prayer and then we'll sing the last uh, hymn. Oh Father, what an encouragement it is just to review the history of this world. Lord, in the last two centuries, what marvels you've done in South America, Africa, China, parts of Europe. Lord, uh, what wonderful things uh, that you've done in North America, in many people's genuine Christians' lives. Oh, Father, we praise you and thank you for your glorious work of, of bringing people to know Jesus. And Lord, we, we do ask you that in, in London we may see uh, your spirit's sword at work in power in this generation lord we've already prayed for the next generation or the young men and young women that are now in their teens and 20s that you would indeed raise many of them up to be powerful witnesses but lord we ask you for this generation and pray lord that we may see you doing great and wonderful things now lord in these months in london in uh lord york and leeds and bristol and and uh uh, Lord, the, uh, in Scotland and Wales, Lord, do great things. Um, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.